Not to read the Bible. Isn't that a great title for a series? How not to read the Bible. Um, you obviously can take that the wrong way. We want you to read the Bible. Uh, we're trying to talk about in this series how to correctly handle the word of truth. Um, the apostles warn us about the twisting of Scripture that can happen. And can I tell you that there are deceivers that twist it on purpose, and then there sometimes through our own ignorance, we twist it in ways without knowing that we're doing it. And so the point of this series has been to try to clarify some of the more difficult passages. And the book that we made available to you is a resource that you can use, not just during this series, but in the future. And the opening part of this book, the, the foundation for it, is really that part one section that we covered. And we've gone over these four points again, but we'll throw them up on the screen uh, so you can see them one more time. One, the Bible, Bible is a library, not a book. Okay, it is one complete story, but it is a collection of books, not just one book. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. So we have to understand that it wasn't written in our modern day um, context. So we have to understand what it meant for the original reader. So we know how to apply it for our lives today, because it is still applicable to us. But it's applicable with the same meaning it had when Jesus spoke those words. <clears throat> and so if we're not understanding what Jesus said, we're going to misunderstand how to apply it to our lives. And so we want to make sure that we study it, that we don't take it out of context, that we don't just read a Bible verse. And we... Understand. Well, Siri, uh, you, you really need to get in the Bible and you'll understand more. I love when she says, I'm not sure I understand. That's all she ever says. That's all you ever say. Um, and then all of the Bible points to Jesus. So uh, there is a movement in our day to, you know, just don't focus on the Old Testament. The Old Testament's too hard to understand. The Old Testament's not important. Um, but if you remember from the dust of Emmaus thing that was up here, Jesus took the scriptures, which at the time was Genesis through Malachi, what we have, and he unpacked it for those two on the road to Emmaus to point to himself. So I don't think we can fully understand the New Testament and what it's telling us if we unhitch it from the Old Testament. We have to be people of the book. All of it, the Scripture from beginning to end, is pointing to Jesus, and we want to make sure that we understand it. So that foundation is then applied to the other parts of the book. So in part two of the book, we talked about some of the difficult passages in the Old Testament. In part three, we talked about the role of women in the church or in the family, what the Bible says about that. In part four, last week, we talked about the Bible and science. Um, that's probably one of the harder ones if you grew up in church for, for believers to wrestle with. In conversations I've had with people, when you mess with Genesis chapter 1, um, it's like the Holy Grail, I think, of the Scripture. And people get really nervous. Um, in, the in fact, about 15 years ago, the Assemblies of God changed our position paper. It's not a doctrine. It's just a stance that we take. And our leaders changed our views on Genesis chapter 1 to be a little more inclusive of people that read Genesis chapter 1 less literally and more figuratively the way I described last week. Um, we actually, at that time, had people who left our church over it. I, don't, I just don't know that, that, that it's a, a, a lever thing. And so, um, but all, more power to you if you feel like the, the understanding it in a fundamentalist way is that important to your faith. 
uh, then you're not probably going to be happy here at Restoration Church because we believe that the Scripture is authoritative, that, we, that it is infallible, but we don't read it the way that we read it in our modern context. We read it in the way that they would have read it, and then we apply it to our lives. And so today, we're going to take that, and we're actually going to build off of it and even back up a little bit, but we're going to talk about Jesus as the only way. One way, Jesus. This series, I want to reiterate again, is not about discouraging you from reading the Bible or getting you overwhelmed uh, by all that is out there. Um, One of the things I'm going to challenge you with today is you don't need to start where you wish you were, but start where you are. So if you're not reading the Bible every day, that's where you need to start. Just read it every day, okay? Build on where you are. Don't try to like uh, join a, a uh, a university and go for a degree today. Um, just start with something. And uh, I'm going to reiterate that as I go through the, the message today. And so in the book for this part, um, this is probably the part we're going to spend the least amount of time on. Um, I think Dan does a great job defending Jesus as the only way to heaven. Uh, you have to keep in mind as you're reading it, he is speaking to an audience that um, is wrestling with that idea. So he is speaking to people that Um, think that it's very narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way, to think that all roads don't lead to heaven. And so he is trying to have a conversation to bring people into a a concept of Jesus being the only way. Um, You may read it and think, oh, well, I I already believe Jesus is the way. Uh, I think it's valuable because it helps us understand the way many people in our society are thinking. And if you can understand where they are and what they're thinking, you can know how to present the gospel to them in a way that helps them to be able to receive it. Um, Yeah, I know the Holy Spirit can just download into our heads everything we need and can help us to, to make sense of it, but I don't know that any of us are really that sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So it's good to understand where people are coming from and maybe study that context so that we know uh, what, what thought process is going on as we have conversations with them. So, however, I don't want to assume that everyone that's in this room uh, has already made the choice to follow Jesus. So we're going to look at just a couple scriptures that he brings out in this part um, that Jesus himself clarifying, and then the apostles later, that he is the only way to salvation, the only way to the kingdom of God, the only way to the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 6, the clearest words of Jesus where he says in this, in this passage, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles talking um, about the the healing of the man that had been crippled at the the gate beautiful. And as Peter is preaching, I believe it's Peter here in in Acts chapter 4, who is saying that salvation is found in no one else. He's talking about this Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Then, in his letter to the, his young uh, protege, Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, don't get hung up on that. He, 
Paul does believe that Jesus is fully God, but he's also contradicting this idea that Jesus was not fully man. Okay? He is not saying Jesus was just a man. But there is a teaching that's happening in the early church known as Gnosticism. We've talked about it for several different weeks in several different series where they believe that the flesh is all evil so it wasn't even possible for Jesus to come in human flesh. It just looked like he was human, but he wasn't human. Paul is clarifying that and saying there is one mediator. It is the man, Christ Jesus, who was also God, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So the Apostle Paul is just clarifying again that Jesus is the one that brings us salvation. Now that word salvation again sometimes gets described in our modern culture as just the prayer you pray so that Jesus forgives your sin, comes to live in your heart, and you go to heaven when you die. And I would say, yes, that is absolutely the beginning of salvation, but that is not all of salvation. Jesus brings us into right relationship with God the Father and brings us into the kingdom of God. So in order to be saved, here's, here's, a, here's a list. This is it, simply. Here's what you do if you want to be saved, if you will. You admit our condition. Our condition is we've sinned. Our condition is we're out of relationship with God. Our condition is we cannot do anything to make ourselves right with God. We admit that. We, we acknowledge it from the beginning. I've broken God's law. I'm a sinner. I'm out of relationship with Him, and there's nothing I can do about it. The second thing we do is we believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means I believe that He's God, come to earth as a human. He was fully God and fully man. He came as an example of how I should live as a follower of Him. He paid the price for my sin, and He is the door. He brings me into relationship with the Father. He brings me into the kingdom of God. And that leads me to step three, I follow Him. I do what He taught. I live like He lived. I live according to His way. I don't just go and do my own thing and wait for Him to call me to heaven when I die. I have gained entrance into the kingdom of heaven, which, by the way, is at hand. Amen. That's some good stuff right there. And in the book, Dan will tell us that God does this. He saves us for the purpose of mission. He has called us to be a part of what Jesus was doing, of the restoration of all things. I know that when Jesus comes back to earth, then it'll be fully complete. And until that day, there won't be full restoration. But yet we still strive for it. We strive to bring healing and hope and goodness and joy and peace and love into every circumstance that we find ourselves in. We don't give in to criticalness and cynicism and despair and hopelessness. We don't just throw up our hands and let the storm take us wherever it wants to take us. We anchor ourselves in the truth of God's kingdom and we live according to it. No matter how I feel, I live according to what Jesus lived. And Jesus lived according to the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. That's what we've been called into. There are far too many pe uh, people who go to church week after week after week, who've said a prayer, who've invited Jesus to forgive their sins and are looking forward to heaven. They're even trying to live by the code of the Bible, but they're not following Jesus. 
They're not living according to the principles, the standards, the way of the kingdom. They're living according mostly to the kingdoms of this world, seeking to add to their lives just Jesus. I want to just add Him to what I'm already doing. That doesn't work. And it leaves us in a place of hopelessness. It leaves us in a place of frustration. It makes us tired. It makes us cranky. It makes us cynical. Some of the most miserable people I know are people who have asked Jesus to forgive their sins and are waiting for heaven, but are not living according to kingdom principles. Thanks, Marv. I agree. (laughs) So I want to back up. And I want to talk about the way of Jesus, because I believe Jesus came to show us the way. And I believe we see see it in what we talked about last week. So I want to show you a video. It's about four minutes, and it's going to recap everything I said last week. And I know you'll be like, well, Pastor Tom, why couldn't you say it in four minutes? Well, I'm not as good as them. So watch this video. The number seven is a big deal in the Bible. Yeah, in biblical Hebrew, the word seven is connected to the idea of fullness or completeness. And that's something we all long for, but don't often experience. Instead, we find ourselves working endlessly, fighting back chaos with no real rest. Yes. Now keep all that in mind as we turn to Genesis 1 in the Bible. It begins with darkness and disorder, but then God speaks to bring about light and order so that life can flourish. And this happens over the course of six days. Each day is marked with the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. But on the seventh day, something special happens. God stops and rests. Right. Creation is brought to its completion on the seventh day. And that phrase, there was evening and there was morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. It's like a day with no end. On the seventh day, God's presence fills his creation. The land provides for all of God's creatures, including humans, who are appointed to rule the world with God forever. Kings and queens of the seventh day rest. I can get into that. But the humans are deceived by a dark power, and they forfeit that rest. They're exiled into the wilderness, where they have to work as slaves to the land. Until they die and return to the dust from which they came. But God wants to restore humanity back to that seventh day rest. So he chooses to give the family of Israel that experience of ultimate rest so they can share it with others. But how? They're in Egypt, slaves to an oppressive empire who's grinding them into the dust. So God confronts Egypt and he liberates the Israelites, taking them through the darkness and chaos on the way to the promised land. Now, while they're on their way, they find themselves in the wilderness. It's easy to get lost, life is a struggle, they're not in the land of rest yet. But while they're on the way, God invites them in the wilderness to start living as if they're in the promised land. But how do you practice the future rest in the wilderness? Well, God tells them that every seventh day they are to stop their work, or in Hebrew, to Shabbat, so that they can rest and enjoy God's good world. So take a whole day to live as if the ultimate rest has already come. Yeah, this is the Sabbath, celebrated every week on the seventh day. But there's more. The Sabbath is just one of seven festivals that Israel practiced every year, each one anticipating that seventh day rest. That is a lot of sevens. And there's even more. Every seven years, the Israelites were to liberate slaves, forgive debts, and let the land rest for a whole year. And then, every seven times seven years was the ultimate seventh day rest, called the year of Jubilee. 
If anyone had lost their land or gone into debt, all was forgiven, everything restored. Wow, so the Sabbath, these feasts, the year of Jubilee, it's all pointing towards the hope of future rest. Right. Now, when the Israelites went into the land, they forgot their God, and so they forfeited their chance for rest in the Promised Land. They're exiled and enslaved again by an oppressive nation, led back into a world of chaos and disorder. But Israel's prophets said that their exile would end one day, and that the ultimate jubilee of freedom and rest would come, but generations go by, and they're still waiting. It's at this dark point in the story that Jesus appears, and he launches his public mission on a Sabbath day. Yeah, he read aloud from the scroll of Isaiah, saying that it was time for all captives and slaves to be released because this was the year of the Lord's favor. What did he mean, this is the year of the Lord's favor? He was talking about the ultimate jubilee. Also, Jesus is claiming that seventh day rest would come through him. Right, he said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and he confronted disorder and darkness in all of its forms, liberating people from sickness, sin, even from death itself. Yet, Jesus was killed, so even his work was undone. Well, it seemed that way. But notice, Jesus timed his death to take place at the end of the week. His body rested in a tomb during the Sabbath, and on the eighth day, he rose from the dead. Oh wait, the eighth day? You mean the first day of a new week? Exactly. Jesus' resurrection was like the first day of a new creation, where God's light and life broke into the darkness. So because of the resurrection, we have hope in God's promise of future rest. But we're not there yet. It's like we're still in the wilderness, where we experience struggle and pain. But as we journey towards that ultimate seventh day, Jesus invites us to experience a taste of real rest now, by following him, or in his words, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's interesting that a collection of books written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors is tied together with amazing continuity. Or maybe God planned it that way. So maybe it's not so amazing. So Jesus comes along and he says, I've come not to abolish Torah. I've come to fulfill it. In other words, he said, I've come to teach you the correcting, uh, correct understanding of Torah. Here's the thing. Some of us think that the Old Testament, the Torah, was given, the law was given so that people could see they could never measure up to God's standard. Eh. Clearly, the, the New Testament writers tell us no one was ever justified by the law. Abraham was justified by faith, not because he kept the law. No one comes to God and is ever justified by the law. So why was the law given? Because the people of God, through Abraham, came to God by faith. And as a result, they entered into a covenant with God, and God gave them the law, the Torah, to live according to the covenant, so that they would live <clears throat> as the covenant people of God, according to the way He set up the world to function. That's why the law was given. Now, we know they were miserable at it. They never could do it. No one can keep the law. It's impossible. So then we come into the New Testament where God writes his law on our hearts by the Spirit of God so that we can fulfill what they were never able to fulfill in the Old 
covenant so that you and I can live in a very proactive way, not a reactive way, and we can live according to what God designed the world to be like. So Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, if I would ask today, how many of you want that? How many of you want rest? I bet every hand would go up. We're like, yeah, I want that. Oh, Jesus, give me rest. But here's what Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, there's a way that I'm telling you to live that will bring you into rest. <clears throat> I think as, as Christians, oftentimes we, we pray on Sunday, oh God, give us rest. And here's the thing. In his grace and mercy, he sometimes does. He does. He gives us this peace and he gives us hope. But by Tuesday, it kind of burns off. And we're living, I believe, according to not the yoke, the way of Jesus. We're living on the, it, almost like this, more, this version that's like some Christianity, some way of Jesus, but a lot of the way of humanity. A lot of my own reason mixed in. And we're wondering why we don't have inner peace. Why we don't have rest. Hmm. We have to take on the way of life of Jesus in order to live this out. As I told you last week, I believe creation story is a temple story. And I believe when the Sabbath comes, God enters into his rest, and he doesn't rest on a, a bed, he rests on a throne. The word, if you want to throw up the temple story list there, the, the word Shabbat the, that is translated rest is actually to sever, to put to an end, to desist, to stop. That's what it means, to, to stop. Sabbath was about stopping. It was about, yes, resting, but God has established this kingdom, this earth, this creation, and he's ruling it from his temple in Eden, and he has his priests, Adam and Eve, who are told to fill the earth and subdue it, to extend his rule and his reign from Eden all over the world. And God looked at what he created, and he said, it's very good. It's enough. He is the God of enough. In the, in, the, in the wilderness, what God wanted to teach the people is that he provided enough. He gave them manna, just enough for today. Just enough for today. He is the God of enough. Oh, I, I wish I had more. And that's what Adam and Eve bought into. God looked at creation and he says it's enough. Adam and Eve looked at creation and said, I want more. It's not enough. I want more knowledge. I want that fruit. I want to be like God. And we know that because of that, sin entered the world. Relationship with God was severed. It was broken. So God picks a new guy, a guy named Abraham and the people of Israel. And they set up tabernacles and temples. And you can trace all the way through the scripture leading up to the culmination of what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that God is doing the same thing. He's giving this covenant to his people to live it out. At, and we are now the priesthood living out the kingdom. This is how the kingdom of God operates. I believe from beginning to end, the Bible is a story about two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of this world, and there is the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a list up here. There's two different kingdoms. I put, for the kingdom of the world, I put the kingdom of empire, 
the kingdom of mankind, the kingdom of humans, kingdoms of the world, whatever you want to call it, and then the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of shalom. That word shalom, yes, it means peace, but it means wholeness and peace. It means completeness. It's the kingdom of heaven. And all throughout Scripture, really starting in the book of Exodus, we see that the kingdom of empire operates under fear, it operates under a lack mentality. I, I don't have enough. I need more. It operates under a force. I'm going to force. The kingdoms of this world have to operate this way. The only way you get people to obey is to give force. You have to give the stick. You have to rule over people. That's the way kingdoms of the world operate. It's not necessarily bad. It can be bad. It can go too far. But that's how it works. And it's all about self-preservation. It's all about me. The kingdom of, the, of God, the kingdom of Shalom, what Jesus calls us into is a kingdom not of fear, but of trust. Trust. And you're not always going to feel like trusting. In fact, sometimes you're going to be afraid because over and over in the Scripture, we're told, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Over and over and over again. So the fact that you're afraid doesn't mean that you're giving into the kingdom of the world unless you act on your fear and you don't act on trust. Don't lean on my own understanding, but trust Him. It's not, a, it's not lack, it's enough. I have enough. Sabbath is all about stopping and saying, I have enough. I, I have enough. It's not a kingdom of force. It's a kingdom of invitation. <laughs> he invites us to come. He doesn't lead with a stick. He leads with his voice. And it's not about self-preservation. It's about self-sacrifice. Those are the differences. And we see <clears throat> from this place of rest, this place of trust, we come to this place where we believe we have enough. And the point of Sabbath was to take one day to get this ingrained in us so that we lived it out all the other days. And so in our world today, we're like, well, should we really literally keep a Sabbath? Do we need to keep the Sabbath? Do we not keep the Sabbath? Here's the thing. There are ten commandments. And every, every born-again Christian for the most part, would say at least nine of them are still in force. Why not this one? And even if it's not a law that we have to follow or we're sinning against God, it is ingrained in the universe and the way that it is made. And so if we do not operate under at least the Sabbath mentality, we are going against the grain of God's creation and we are going to get tired. That's good. That is so good, Pastor Tom. Thank you for sharing that. So when it comes to the Sabbath, there's four things. Wow, that didn't actually show up like it should have. There are four things that, uh, that we, we, we learn from Sabbathing. One is it's about stopping. It's about stopping from working and worrying and wanting. Stop. Don't work. Don't worry. Don't want. So if you want to shop on the Sabbath... Don't shop on the Sabbath. It just creates desire in you. Stop. You have enough. You're just going to buy things you can't afford and then have to work harder to pay for them because you're in debt. Stop. That's what it's about. It's about resting. It's about resting our mind and our body 
and our spirit. It's about rest. It's about delighting. It's about celebrating the goodness of God. It's not about the meticulous rules that we have to follow of what we can and cannot do on the Sabbath. It's about delighting in God's creation. It's reminding us we don't serve a taskmaster who stands over us with a whip. He actually provides for us. Yes, He's called us to create with Him. He's called us to produce. He's called us to work. But He is not standing over us. In fact, the work we do is empowered by Him. And if we don't stop and rest and celebrate the goodness of God regularly, we will think we're the ones that have to do it all. And we'll start manipulating, and we'll start trying to control people, and we'll start just trying to to make things happen. This is what's happening in the political scene, I believe, in our world today. We are trying so hard to make America a Christian nation, and the church just needs to learn to rest. Oh, man, maybe if we just started living according to the yoke of Jesus, he would save the ship and all who sail with us. Amen. And we just get tired, and we get cynical, and we get angry, and we get frustrated. And I only see Jesus one time getting angry, and it was flipping over the tables in the church. We worship. It's not a day off. It's not a day about me. It's not a day to go to the lake. It's not a day. In fact, leisure is one of the biggest problems that we have in our, con- our culture. We spend our Sabbath on our phone playing games. We spend our Sabbath at the lake camping or getting the boat ready. And so we, we come back from our day of leisure more tired than when we left. Nothing wrong with boats and campings and phones and all of these things, but can I tell you, that's, it's about centering our hearts on God. That's what the Sabbath is all about. And even if it's not a command, again, it's given to us in the framework of the, the Scripture. Last week we talked about this. We're, we as human beings are the caretakers of God's work, of God's planet. And He's told us, don't overwork. Don't overwork your laborers. Don't overwork the land. Don't overwork animals. In fact, if you go to Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 58, and you find out why it's not on the screen, you'd have to go to it on your own, but if you go to these chapters, you'll find out why God took the people of Israel into Babylonian captivity. Because they were neglecting the Sabbath, because they were overworking their laborers, because they were not, they were fighting against what God, they were the anti-story. God called them into a place of rest and to serve Him from rest and to worship Him from that place and they fought against it because we know more than God. Hey, if we can do this much on six days, imagine what we can do on seven. If I can do this much with these workers, what if I work them harder? What if I push them more? And can I tell you, in our, our culture, in our American culture, we have bought into this. And we think that if we just mass produce animals and if we try to squeeze as many animals as we can into this tiny little barn and let them, even though they sit there and they never move and they just sit in their own filth and we, stuff, we, 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 we put in antibiotics and, and stuff into them so that they grow bigger and faster because we just want more. And in the process, these major corporations run family farms out of business. You can't compete with that especially if you're going to take a Sabbath. I mean, don't give the land rest. We've figured out things. We can, we can fight against this. We can do this. 
In, in the early 1900s, we started in America the Industrial Revolution, if you will. And in 1900, 1901, Henry Ford brought the automobile to us. About $900, you could purchase a Model T Ford. But $900 was too much. People weren't buying them. So he came up with an assembly line process where he would, rather than have people make these cars by hand, machines would build them. So we just need people to stand there and tighten this bolt. Next one comes, assembly line. And do you know what happened? People quit. They didn't want to be a, a, a cog on a wheel. They wanted, to, they wanted to build. They wanted to create. So do you know what Henry Ford did? He doubled their salary. All right, I'll do that. I'm not saying don't work an assembly line job, don't do like... We thought we could be more productive. We think we can work more than 40 hours. In the, during the French Revolution, they thought they should try a 10-day work week and then give people time off. We were created, scientifically, there are studies that show we were created for sevens. We cycle in sevens. Every seven days, your body needs more rest. Every seven days. So when you try to beat that cycle on a continual basis, do you know what you get? You get tired. Your body gets broken down. Sickness and disease is rampant. And we come to church and we're like, oh, Jesus, in these next 35 minutes, please give me rest for my soul. And he does. Oh, because he's so good. If I was God, I'd be like, no, stop it. Until you learn how to do it right, I'm not going to give you anything. But it's the goodness and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And this can, I know this can be overwhelming. And today, please don't leave here today and be like, oh my gosh, how are we going to fix the whole world? Don't fix the whole world. Focus on ourselves first. And don't try to do everything. Start with where you are. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, am I even following Jesus? Or have I bought into this system of, uh, of more and I, I've got to be more productive, I've got to have more money, I've got to get more power, I've got to have more rights? Or have I learned, like the Apostle Paul, the secret of contentment that says, I have enough. I have enough. And today I'm going to sit and I'm going to rest in the goodness of God because it's enough. And tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to work hard again. And tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to try to solve those problems. I'm going to try to figure out my finances. But for today, I'm going to say, I, I have enough. And I don't know what it would take to actually get our, our church, our culture, back to a place where we actually Sabbath. I don't even know if we need to, but we at least have to get back to that mindset. Where almost daily, we take time to set aside and we, just, we carve out time every single day where we just rest, where we're in, in quiet, where we're, we're just listening. There is Matthew chapter 11. Throw it up again. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble at heart. He's not a mean taskmaster. He, a smoldering wick, he is not going to snuff out. A bruised reed, he's not going to break. But you, we can't stay on this, this treadmill. We have to break the cycle. We have to recognize that the way we're living, the mindset we're living by has to change. That if this is not giving me rest, some people never look up from their phones all through church even. They never do. 
and we wonder why we have no rest. First thing we do when we crawl out of bed in the morning. Scientifically, they're telling us it's killing us. And the dopamine addiction is so strong that we can't stop. We can't stop. I've been hearing this in things I've read, things I've saw, things I've done for so long. Let me just go on record as saying, I need to stop. I need a day away from my phone every single week. And so I, I've actually figured out, because if you, if you put your phone on drive mode, it sends an automatic text. So if you ever text me, you might get an automatic reply that says, I'm taking a day away from my phone today. If this is important, call me. If not, I'll reply tomorrow. Why? Because we can't, I, I got to start somewhere. We can't keep doing this. It goes against everything God has ingrained. You're not going to have rest. You're not going to re respond well if it's constant, if it's go, 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 if it's constant stimulation. We have to find rest. Yeah, there's a biblical call to produce. There's a biblical call to work hard. We have to know where the boundaries are. And we start somewhere. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. He told them this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. It can be something as simple as one day a week, put it away. It could be something as simple as one hour a day, put it away. It could be something about as simple as five minutes a day, just sitting in complete quiet and saying, God, what do you want to say to me today? I don't know what it's going to be for you. I've asked the Holy Spirit this week to make it clear, to make it plain, and to make it small. Little by little. See, we think God's into overthrowing kingdoms. <laughs> He's not into overthrowing kingdoms. That's why they missed the Messiah when he came the first time. Because Rome was still in charge. Rome is in charge. You can't be the Messiah. And he's like, no, 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 no. My kingdom is like a yeast. And it's going to, little by little, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow and it's going to infect the, king, the kingdom of empire. God's not, he doesn't, I have to be careful how I say it. He's, he's not trying to make America a Christian nation again. He's just trying to get the church to live in the kingdom so that the yeast permeates everything, so that the kingdom of the world is squeezed out by the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? Nothing wrong with fighting for laws to be passed, justice to be broken. I'm all for it. I think it should happen. But when we start getting frustrated and angry and cynical and jaded, that's not empire. That's empire. That's not the kingdom of God. There is, in, in Minneapolis and in most universities, there is something called an anechoic, anechoic, there we go, anechoic chamber. An anechoic chamber is basically a room where there's no sound. There's all of these things. So it's basically absolute quiet. NASA will send astronauts there to practice what it's going to be like in space to, to be without sound. Because if, you're, if you literally get into silence, you, you start hearing your body. You start hearing, like you literally hear your lungs. As if like you're the doctor listening through the stethoscope, you hear it. You can hear blood actually flowing through your veins. It, and they tell you if you try to just like cold turkey it, it can drive you crazy to be in that much silence. 
Man, there is a spiritual principle there, is there not? When we get into a place of quiet, a place of rest, whether it's five minutes a day or it's one day a week, and we just quiet ourselves before God, the noise of our bodies comes to the surface. I don't know if you've ever been in a room where the tenor of the room, meaning like the the atmosphere of the room was good, like people were happy, and someone came in and the the atmosphere of the room changed. Maybe they came in anxious. Maybe they came in angry. Maybe they came in depressed, very sad, very grief-stricken. But it changes the room. I started asking myself a question this week. When I walk into a room, what sound does my soul make? Because if I live life hurried, I guarantee you without even knowing it, I bet I'm changing the atmosphere of that room. Whether it's my house, whether it's my workplace, whether it's our community, our church. I mean, if we rush in here, okay, we, we've, we've carved out, we've got, we got this much time. Let's get in, let's get out, let's get it done. Wow. I mean, imagine why our, our souls are not at rest. And I'm not, in, I'm not saying we need longer church services. What I'm saying is we need more quiet in our lives so that the noise that's in here comes to the surface. We recognize it. We cry out to him and say, oh my Lord, I am living by the kingdom of this world. I am not living in rest. I'm not living in peace. I feel like I need something else. Somebody's keeping something from me. I, they, I, I don't have enough. Someone's out to get me. How, how can I possibly live at peace? And if we embrace this idea of solitude and silence and Sabbath, it brings an inner peace and rest. Henry Nowen, Henry Nowen is just an old leadership guy, just loved Jesus, <laughs> loved Sabbath and solitude. And he said this, compassion is the fruit of solitude. So here's the litmus test. How do I know if I've embraced the wrong system? How do I know if I'm living kingdom of this world or kingdom of God? Let me ask you this. Are you living from a place of peace and stillness? Or are you living from a place of anxiety and worry? Are you always thinking about what comes next? Or are you living in the moment, embracing it, even if it's not happening as fast as you want it to? Is is your day marked by kingdom responses or fleshly reactions? Because here's the thing, we can think we're following the voice of the Spirit and we're really just following our own instincts and reasonings. How do you affect the rooms that you enter? Does the tenor of the room go up or does it come down? And here's the thing. If you can't answer, if you say to those questions, oh, I don't like the answers to those. Here's what you need to do. Number one, admit it. Admit it. See, God, man, my soul is making a lot of kingdom of this world noise. Help me. It's, it's really that simple. It's just to acknowledge it. 
I'm, I am buying into the wrong system. Some of us are buying into it a lot. Some of us maybe only a little. Some of us, maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I feel at rest, actually. But maybe you're actually needing to get engaged more in the work of God. I mean, because there's, there's another side of this. For the most part, most of us in this country are going to lean this way. And we're going to be like, oh, I need to get rest. I need to stop hurrying. I need to be in quiet. I need stillness. I need to carve out time. I need to Sabbath. I need to stop. But there are going to be some that are the exception to that. Where all you do is rest. And it's not resting with God at the center. It's resting with me at the center. And so if that's you, the Holy Spirit can speak that to you too. I don't know where you are. I know where I am. And I didn't plan to confess to you about my my phone. But sometimes you need to go on record because you just need to do it. And I, I don't kid you when I say it's been two years that I feel like the Holy Spirit's been saying, you need time away from that thing. But there's so much, and I feel fine (laughs) until I get squeezed. And then you know what comes out? Not kingdom. Oh, but if that person wouldn't have squeezed me. See, I'm responsible for every one of my own reactions. And every time Jesus was squeezed, kingdom came out. Every time. And every time Jesus walked into a room, he raised the room. The room never went down when Jesus walked in. And that's what we've been called to do. So we have to own the fact that if there's a lack of inner peace in my soul, it's on me. Holy Spirit, help. And then I need to renew my mind. I need to embrace the way of Jesus more fully. Not just bits and pieces of the way of Jesus. Not just the big things. Sexual immorality. Yep, got that one. Check. But the the lust for more. I've got to have more. I've got to go into more debt to get more stuff so I can have more, more, more. And then I got to work harder to pay that off. And then I more, more, more. You got to fight that. Because I promise you our culture, capitalism, the industrial revolution, the American way of life is not going to breed rest for your soul. You have to choose it. And you're going to have to fight to keep it. But the Holy Spirit will guide us. And then number three, start where you are and not where you want to be. Find that rhythm. Don't try to do more. Don't walk out of here today and say, I am going to Sabbath every day, every week. I am going to fully Sabbath. Ain't nobody ready for that. I mean, if the Holy Spirit tells you to do it, by all means, dive in. But start somewhere. Every morning, I'm going to set the alarm and get out of bed, and I'm going to take five minutes, not laying down before the Lord, but sitting up before the Lord, and I'm going to get quiet. And I'm going to say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me? Five minutes in the middle of the afternoon, five minutes in the middle of the the day. Uh, Maybe for your family, it's get this away from the table. At the table, our phones are off. We're not going to answer the phone. We're not going to answer texts. 
we're going to take time as a family and we're going to sit here and we're going to talk and we're going to pray and no one's going to die in 30 minutes because our phones are off. I don't know what it is for you, but start somewhere and then don't stay there. Build on it. Build on it. Let's fight against it. I think this is who we are as Restoration Church. We are fighting against the grain of the kingdom of empire and we are trying to fully embrace the kingdom of, this, of, of, the kingdom of heaven and what that looks like. And so we're a church that's not like every other church. And it's not that every other church is doing it wrong. We're just trying to do it in a way that breeds life. And sometimes it takes a long time. And sometimes it feels like we're in a desert or a wilderness and we're like, is anything ever going to happen? And I am so encouraged because I think things are happening. I think God is building his kingdom through our church body little by little. I mean, it's 60 pounds of flour and a little bit of yeast. I bet that takes a lot of work and a lot of stuff happening in the quiet and in the stillness. And so, Father, I want to thank you today for your goodness. I want to thank you for your mercy. And I want to thank you for your grace. God, so many of us in this room, so many that are watching online, man, we have bought into this system. We are living in a hurry. We are living in fear. We are living with a lack mentality. We are living with self-preservation. God, we, are, we have bought into the kingdom of empire and we don't even know it. And yet we wonder why we don't have the peace and the rest that you've promised us. God, I thank you for just the word today <laughs> to take a moment and just receive. Man, we, we probably lived in a hurry and we lived against the grain of your kingdom all week long. And yet in that moment when we asked, you gave us rest. You gave us peace. And so I thank you that you don't stand over us today with a whip trying to, to get us to, to do it all but you stand speaking, leading us with your voice, showing us what step to take. And so Holy Spirit, give clarity today to every person that's here. Where do we start? What do we change? Give us the humility to acknowledge what needs to change. And then give us the grace to do it and to not give up. Help us to be an encouragement to one another, to challenge one another, to push one another into places of rest, solitude, and peace. God, thank you for your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Help us to use it well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This week, that's your challenge. Where do you start? Where do you find silence? Where do you find solitude? Where do you find rest? Pay attention to your soul and the sounds that it's making throughout the week. When you fail, throw up your hands. Say, God, I don't want to buy into this empire. Bring kingdom. Show me where to go. Show me what to do. And he'll lead you. 
So thanks for being here today. Don't forget to stop by the table in the back. Offering baskets are out there for tithes and offerings and global outreach. Uh, there are copies of the book. There are copies of other books. There are calendars. There's information uh, about the events that are coming up at James Valley Christian School. Uh, all kinds of things on that table. Uh, make sure you stop by before you go. God bless you as you go today.